Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest is Dr. John Pfeffer, direct, uh, excuse me, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Um, I was wondering if we could start with maybe a, a vibe check on, on where the pandemic's at. I was trolling through the charts of COVID levels in sewer sheds around here and noticed that most of them seem to show a pretty steady upward trend since sometime in June. And then I trolled through some CDC statistics and saw the number of COVID hospitalizations, while still low, has been trending up, as has the percentage of people who show up at emergency rooms who test positive for COVID as part of the routine intake testing. Um, are, are we seeing enough of a trend to be concerned now? Well, we're seeing a trend. You're, you're um, spot on with your observations. Clearly, the numbers are up in all of those parameters. And just anecdotally, um, I know several people right now who have COVID. So there's clearly a lot of virus in the community. Um, I think we have to put those numbers in perspective, though. We're starting from a very low base. That is, we've we've reached a number of cases of COVID, hospitalizations for COVID, even deaths for COVID now that are lower than at any time in the pandemic. So when you read numbers about a 10% increase in uh, caseload or a 3 or 4% increase in percent positivity or even an increase in deaths, you have to remember that it's it's a percentage over a very small number. So it's not a big increase at this point. I interpret this as meaning that, yes, we're seeing an increase in cases and we are starting to see a little bit of an increase in hospitalizations, but it's nothing compared to the last two summers at this point. And nobody can predict what this virus is going to do still, but I think that, um, Things are looking like we are going to see a summer rise in cases, but nothing like the previous summers. In the the data that's collected on which variants are turning up in samples, is there any evidence that a new variant is driving the surge? Or do we think this is just a, a seasonal pattern, a consequence of uh, people sharing air-conditioned spaces indoors when the heat cranks up? I think it's more likely the latter, and that is a seasonal pattern. Now, it's important to establish right up front that this virus has not um, found its seasonality. We can't say that like influenza we know has a classic seasonality, measles had a classic seasonality, and so on. This virus doesn't have a classic seasonality as yet. Um, That said, I think that um, the 
I don't know if it's just the air conditioning and people indoors because it, it's probably more than that because people are in air conditioned areas all over the country right now and we're seeing it in different we're seeing rises in different parts of the country more than others so air conditioning I think plays a role but I think it's more likely the fact that really the American public has decided to live with this virus and go on with its life and um, that may be very reasonable for the vast majority of people. Uh, so people are doing the kinds of things that put them at risk of getting COVID. And I think that's why we're seeing an increase in, in the number of cases. Again, not a dramatic increase. But coming back to your original question, this is what gives me the greatest deal of comfort, at least today. And that is, there is no new variant. We're still dealing with all these different variations of Omicron. We've been dealing with them since December 1st of 2021 here in the United States. So we're dealing with variations of the same variant. And that's, I think, very reassuring. We we haven't seen like we did that terrible Delta a couple of years ago or different new variants that just were a whole new ball game. Uh, so that's, I think that's very comforting. We know the beast right now. Now that's not to say that we could wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden there's a new variant. It sure could do that. It's done that in the past, but we haven't seen that for a long time. It is at least theoretically possible for the virus to kind of hit its peak level of optimization, right? Like it, it mutates into its most contagious form. It's just not going to spin off new variants after that point. I wish that was a law of nature, and that is that we're guaranteed that that will be the case. It certainly is the case historically for viruses and bacteria to tend to do that. Um, and pandemics do end. Um, so I think that we can be comforted. It's just a question of, is it going to end in three years or 10 years or 100 years? So I think that that's a likely scenario. Uh, that tends to be the way nature plays the game, but no guarantee. No guarantee, indeed. All right. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg. He is here to answer your questions. If you'd like to put them over to him over the phone, the number is 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your Corona calls. We'll start with some questions from the inbox. Maria in San Francisco uh, wrote in to ask about potential long-term effects from COVID that are beyond uh, the the chronic illness immediately after infection that we call long COVID. She writes, what if there are effects down the road that aren't obvious at first, and it doesn't, quote, unleash its full devastation on the body until a decade or so down the line? Right. Well, of course, we don't have a decade or so to know the answer to that question. And it's a very important question that Maria is asking. Um, it would be unusual for this to happen. We know with some viruses, like in the herpes virus family, like herpes or chickenpox virus, um, we know that these viruses can live in our bodies for the rest of our lives and can reactivate episodically for years. Um, we have not seen anything like that with this virus. Uh, it's very different than the herpes viruses, and it doesn't uh, behave like that. So I think that 
that would be the likely explanation for a surprise down the road, and we don't see that with this virus. So I think it's unlikely that people are going to get over COVID, and then 10 years later, they're going to all of a sudden have a problem that was related to that event 10 years previously. I think that's highly unlikely. But until we have 10 years under our belt, we can't be 100% sure. So like chicken box uh, can come back as shingles later in life. It's a, a latent virus in your body at that point being reactivated. Uh, in, in the herpes virus family, Epstein-Barr, uh, I saw a very convincing study last year uh, that suggested it's responsible for maybe a, a third of Alzheimer's, of multiple sclerosis cases, rather, uh, reactivation of a latent virus. Uh, they're different, like, categories of virus, though. As, as my understanding is they're like double-stranded DNA viruses. They have very different properties from an RNA virus like SARS-CoV-2? Right. So SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, is um, its genetic material is made up of RNA, just like influenza, for example, and measles. Um, herpes viruses and many other viruses are made up of DNA as opposed to RNA. And in the herpes virus family, they can establish what you're, you're describing correctly as latency. That is, the virus can get inside of our cells and just stay there, not manifesting themselves for years, sometimes decades, and then pop up again. Shingles, like you said, is the classic example. But this is uh, the DNA viruses have nothing to do with the RNA viruses in terms of they be, how they behave. So I don't think that we can worry that we're going to see that with COVID, as I was saying before, because we've seen it with other viruses. All right. Let's go to the phone lines. Again, the number is 1-800-958-9008 for your questions for Dr. Schwartzberg. First up, we'll talk to Jane in Berkeley. Good morning, Jane. Hi. Um. Thank you. Um, I'm 75 years old, fully vaccinated and boosted. I'm planning a trip to South Africa and Namibia in September. And do they also, the variants in South Africa, are they also still Omicron? Is that true worldwide? Right, Jane. The um, It's worldwide. Um, Omicron is, is the not only the gorilla in the room, it is the only player in the room, essentially, uh, around the planet. So you're going to be dealing with... Um, subvariants of Omicron wherever you are in the world. So, yes, and the vaccines that we have do cover that pretty well. Good luck planning that trip. It sounds lovely, Jane. Uh, let's take another one from the inbox. Karin in Petaluma asks uh, if we've ever gotten a good answer on how important fomites are in COVID transmission. Uh, this would be like residue left behind outside the body, like from a sneeze on a doorknob? Yeah, we're pretty much where we were, where we've been um, for the last couple of years in terms of our knowledge about that. And that is that inanimate objects, fomites, uh, do not appear to play an important role in the transmission of this virus. But notice I say an important role because I can't tell you with 100% assurance that they don't. And that's why I think the CDC and the State Department of Public Health here in California keep telling us to make sure you use good hand hygiene. The way this virus almost always spreads is through the air, typically in very small particles that can travel a distance, but also in larger particles that can travel about six feet. So this is its primary way of spreading. 
whether or not fomites play a role, I can, uh, the only thing I think we can come to a consensus about is that if they play a role, it's a very minor one in terms of transmission. Still a good idea to use good hand hygiene, though. It's <laughs> like not a big downside to washing your hands. No, and the, the fact is that, uh, you know, I think many of your listeners have been hearing about this other virus, RSV, that we saw a big surge in last uh, fall. Um, that virus can live on fomites, and it does transmit very well. So if I shake somebody's hands, or more likely if somebody has got the virus on their hands and uh, is, is writing something with a pencil or pen, and then I pick up that pencil or pen uh, and then put my hands to my nose or mouth or even my eye, I could transmit it that way. So RSV and RNA virus can transmit easily by fomites, but we don't see that with SARS-CoV-2. All right. Uh, our next caller is also in Berkeley. Deborah's on the line. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning, Brian. Dr. Schwartzberg, I wanted to thank you so much for these last three years that you've been on. I have always looked forward to hearing from you, and I've learned a lot. And just thank you for being here for us. But my question is this. So I'm a long-distance cyclist. I've been for my whole life. I'm 65 years old. I'm fully vaccinated. I got my bivalent couple of um, about last month. And I'm currently going in two weeks. I'm going to be going to Australia to ride my bike for a month in the outback. And I um, and will be with 11 other cyclists. And it's a 23-day tour that we're doing. And I'm going to be sharing a room for the first time. I usually always get my own room, but for some reason I decided I was going to share. So I'm sharing a room with another cyclist. And I, don't, I have no idea who the cyclist is. She'll be part of the tour. And um, I don't know if she's vaccinated or not. And now I'm starting to think, since, since it seems like COVID is, again, on the rise a little bit, and I'm wondering if I made a mistake. And I just wanted your take on that. I mean, it's too late for me to pull out. I'm going <laughs> to definitely go, but I just wanted your take on that. Thank you. Sure, Deborah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your really kind remarks. Um, I think the good news I heard from you is that you got your um, bivalent booster about a month ago. And we know that that gives excellent protection, even against getting infected for a number of weeks. Uh, we don't know how long, depends on the person, but uh, you're gonna be pretty well protected, um, certainly from getting any serious disease uh, and maybe from even getting infected when you're on your trip. So that's gonna give you a, an extra boost in terms of protection. Um, carrying, uh, or taking with you Paxlovid in case you do get COVID is always, I think, a good idea when you're traveling internationally. And that's something you might talk to your uh, physician about. Um, in terms of did you make a mistake? Well, um, you know, every you have to live your life. Everybody is, is, um, is doing a lot more than we've been doing in the last three years. Your trip sounds fantastic. Um, uh, you can only... You know, we have to trust our fellow um, traveler uh, that they're going to be responsible too. Whether or not they're vaccinated is not the key question. I think the key question is is what they've done to um, uh, keep themselves healthy and that they're not going to come in case they become ill. Um, so I think an agreement with that person that um, if you're sick, please um, please don't come on this trip would be the best thing to do. But of course, you don't have control over that. Uh, my bottom line, your trip sounds fabulous. I would um, go and uh, 
cross your fingers a little bit, but I think um, you're in you're well positioned in terms of the things you've done to keep yourself safe. You know, thinking about that scenario, Doctor Schwartzberg, like my my personal risk meter would be going up much higher um, with with the airports and the airplane cabins and everything else leading up to that hotel room, uh, rather than sharing airspace with one person overnight, right? Because the the odds of that one person having COVID while you're sharing a room would be quite low. The odds of at least one person having COVID when you're in a crowded space, like an airport terminal, are pretty high. Absolutely. The key word is one person. You're absolutely right, Brian. Um, and and uh, Deborah has control over the airport and the airplane in terms of wearing an N95 mask um, when you're in the airport and the airplane. And that's going to give her an enormous amount of protection. All right. Let's go to the Central Valley for our next call. John is on the line in Fresno. Good morning, John. Good morning. Thanks again, Doctor, for carrying on and keeping us on board. Uh, with the coming of the election, what uh, lesson should we... John, I'm having real trouble understanding about... you. Can you try moving your phone closer to your mouth? Okay. It's there. I'll move, though. Is that better? Yes. Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, with the coming of the election next year, what lessons should we have learned about the political debate and the response of COVID? Response to COVID the last time around, we should be listening for candidates to say about uh, public health protections in the future. Sure. Um, John, it's good hearing your voice again. I've been hearing it now for I think off and on for three years. Um, my feeling about what we should ideally hear about COVID in the um, coming political debates um, is that everybody does better. The public does better if everybody, all our politicians are on the same page and using science to get, to guide them. So um, that's what I can only pray for. Tragically, we didn't see that uh, in 2020. Um, and we, we know the consequences of that. It, it led to an awful lot of uh, increased misery and, and death for people. So my, my hope is that um, uh, politicians can see their way to not politicize uh, the public's health. But it also seems like this would be the point at which kind of a prospective pandemic preparedness program belongs in somebody's policy platform. I mean, what we learned from COVID was that the, the our public health infrastructure was kind of tattered. And it, from what I understand, it's not in much better shape now. Well, um, it's, it is, it's in better shape. Uh, certainly, it's in better shape. We, we've, we've learned a lot, and there's been a, an infusion of resources um, in public health, but it's only been three years. And that's when you're talking about a public health system for 330 million people, um, it's going to take a lot more than three years to get it up and running as, in the way it should be and should have been, frankly, when it started. Um, COVID was really, um, when it came, it was a perfect storm for this virus. Um, we had we had a divide, divided population. Um, we had uh, politicians, many politicians who were not speaking with with any science background or science knowledge. 
And um, we had a public health system that had been underfunded for over three decades. And so when this virus came, it, it found very fertile grounds. And we can't make that mistake again. Uh, let's pluck one more question from the inbox. Amy in Oakland asks if there has been any progress towards the development of a nasal spray vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, uh, thanks, Amy. We we get this question um, pretty regularly, and there is progress being made, but nothing. In, it's all uh, at a very preliminary area at this point. There's some really exciting things done, not just with uh, vaccines that can be administered nasally, but also with medications that could be uh, administered nasally, um, medications that could block the virus from being able to get into our cells. Uh, if we just inhale it through the nose. So there's lots of stuff going on, but nothing in the near future that we can anticipate uh, we're going to have in our pockets. I, from what I've tracked of the, the nasal spray vaccine development, this seems to be a case of like lessons not learned. The, the operation warp speed uh, regulatory infrastructure isn't there anymore for rapid vaccine development. Um, so nasal sprays are going to come along on a much slower timeline before they have approval. There, that's, that's right. Um, the, there is an infusion of money now for those, or there will be uh, pretty soon. Uh, but what we need is really a, a steady supply of funding from the government for this kind of research, not something that one big bolus that occurs right now, and then you can't anticipate anything. The researchers can't anticipate anything three years from now. So we need to have a steady plan, a, a 20, 40, 50 year plan of developing these things so that we can really get people working on these, uh, hiring people that can be with these companies and these research labs for long periods of time. So I think that's what we need to be doing publicly. All right, Dr. Schwartzberg, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.